In the traditional calendar of the church, today is baptism of the Lord Sunday. As, Jesus, as, as uh, Talitha talked about, we remember the baptism of Jesus. And uh, following the uh, Russian Orthodox tradition, we threw water on you. Uh, I decided not to preach on Jesus' baptism today because the, um, the world has given us a lot to think about over the last week. And I think we need to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world in matters of war and peace. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm preaching the sermon still using what is the secondary uh, scripture lesson from the lectionary. It's a story of, of, uh, of uh, Peter preaching to uh, a Roman centurion in his household and they receive uh, the Holy Spirit and then they're baptized. And I think that this is a secondary passage for today because it mentions baptism. And so I, I want to start by talking a little bit about baptism as it is presented in this morning's lesson. Because this morning's lesson from the book of Acts is one that has caused a certain amount of division in churches over the years. See, there are people who read this story and they focus on an interesting detail at the very end of the passage. And that's the, the, one, the, the detail in which Peter orders that those who have received the Holy Spirit, those Romans who have received the Holy Spirit, they should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which sounds reasonable enough. But the command of Peter is in direct conflict with the direction of Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, uh, sends out his followers and tells them to baptize folks in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, it might seem possible... For Christians, even staunch Bible-believing Christians, to read the Bible and notice conflicts and say, well, we should not be more doctrinaire than the Word of God. We should not be certain where Scripture is vague. But unfortunately, that's not how most religious people act, right? Instead, some Christians have gone off and formed new churches in which it is deemed appropriate to baptize in the name of Jesus, and they then condemn to eternal perdition those who have refused to join them. And I don't know how many religious bodies have split off to baptize in the name of Jesus, but not in the name of the Father and the Spirit. But I know that there's a, a group called the Apostolic Church, which in California mostly goes by its Spanish name, Iglesia Apostolica. It's one such denomination. And by the way, just about every Christian denomination that baptizes in the name of the Trinity, including our own, would consider the apostolic church to be apostate, and we would rebaptize anyone who came to join us from the apostolic church, as if God really cares. <laughs> there also are those who read this passage and see further proof that speaking in tongues is the definitive mark of a person's Christian faith. It's an interesting proposition since people in the modern era have only been speaking in tongues since uh, 1907 when there was a, a, a revival in Los Angeles. But that's, uh, nonetheless, I've had people come to me as a pastor worried because they don't speak in tongues and they fear that because they don't speak in the tongues of angels, they will never set foot on the far side of the threshold of the pearly gates. Again, all of this betrays what to me is an odd understanding of God. I don't happen to speak in tongues, so I won't pass judgment on the practice. But I do have a fairly strong belief in the idea that God is a solid polyglot. 
If there's a language God doesn't speak, that's just because it hasn't been invented yet. So if all you speak is your mother tongue, God has you covered, I'm pretty sure. God, you see, God is bigger, much, much bigger than all of the ways we misunderstand her. And at the risk of sounding arrogant, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that those who use this morning's passage from Acts to create divisions, they have missed the point of the story. In fact, they get it exactly wrong. And, by the way, I do recognize the irony here. By saying they are wrong, I've just created another division. Or at least I've furthered another division. But bear with me. The passage is not meant to divide us. This passage is meant to demonstrate the ways in which following Jesus and receiving the Spirit can bring us together. This is a story about the inclusive love of God. But historically, even when Christians have used this story to talk about the inclusive love of God, we've done so in a way that is divisive. Or at least it's arrogant. This morning's passage is part of a larger story about one of the earliest examples of non-Jewish people becoming Christians. And for years, for centuries, Christians have read this story as if it's a story about how Christianity invented the idea that God loves everyone. Like no one had ever thought of that before in the 10,000 years or more since humans had been organizing their religions. This certainly is how I first learned the story. And it's how I understood the story for most of my life. Then I came to Montclair Presbyterian Church. And I, and I started leading a Bible study. It's a Bible study I'm still leading. Wednesdays at noon. We're in Genesis right now. Come join us. One of the things about this Bible study here is that it's attended by people who have pushed me to dig deeper into the Bible than I've ever dug before, even at seminary. And here's what I learned about this passage way back when we were still going through the book of Acts. What I learned is that this is not a story about how Christianity invented a God who loves everyone. This is a story about how Christianity embraced Stoicism and Stoic ideas about how God loves everybody. What the Stoics believed is that humanity is something bigger than what today we might call our ethnicity or our race. The Stoics believed that there is more to unite humans than to divide humans. And that one of the things that humans have in common is an ability to know God, the God who is the same God everywhere. This passage reflects a Stoic sensibility. It shows that humans, Jewish and Roman, rich and poor, powerful and oppressed, all can know God, and, and that God is known not so much through religious practices, but through an encounter with the Spirit. Which means that while I have spent most of my life reading this morning's lesson, as being a story about the nature of God, I know now that this story says as much about humanity as it says about God. This is a story about how there is more uniting humans than dividing us. Again, this is a gift we got from the Stoics, and I want to suggest that this little nugget of Stoicism is something we need more of in the world today.
especially among our leaders. We need uh, Christianity's embrace of Stoicism to remind us that more unites us as humans than divides us. By which I mean, as humans, our identity is bigger than our citizenship. Being a child of God is more important than being an American or being an Iranian. Having an encounter with divine holiness is more important than embracing the doctrines of Christianity or Islam. This is something we need to publish abroad right now because as you know, a week ago, we came dangerously close to an all-out war with Iran and despite some mutual de-escalation for which we are all grateful, our two countries remain dangerously close to war. And as part of that war effort, government leaders in Washington and, and maybe also in Tehran will try to get us to embrace the idea that people living in the United States are the natural enemies of those who are living in Iran. But dearly beloved, that is a lie. I don't have an enemy in Iran. The guy who works on my car is Iranian, which means I have an Iranian mechanic. But I do not have an Iranian enemy. Now, chances are pretty good that, that we'll be exposed to some classic wartime propaganda in the near future. Propaganda that will attempt to convince us that we do indeed have Iranian enemies. We will see footage of crowds chanting death to America. We will hear quotes from the Quran taken out of context and read in ways that are meant to scare us. Our leaders need to read more Stoicism. The people of Iran are our sisters and our brothers. We may speak different languages. We may order our lives according to different religious and cultural norms, but we are all children of God. We are all human, and that makes us more alike than it makes us different. Now, Iranians and Americans tend to worship differently, but there are Christians, Jews, and Muslims in both countries. And both countries have religious leaders who are fanatics, who bring out the worst in their followers. But even that makes us similar. <laughs> right? And it's just as true that in both countries, the majority of religious people are folks whose lives are touched and transformed by the Spirit of God. People whose beings are infused with joy and hope and love. The idea that we might have enemies in Iran simply is not true. If we fight a war in Iran, it will result in the deaths of countless people, many of them civilians, none of them our enemies. It will not be a defensive war. It will not have a just cause. It will not be fought proportionally, which means that it will not conform to any commonly accepted standard of just war theory. Not that any war ever does. If we fight a war in Iran, it will not bring peace. Like every other war, a war in Iran will only lead to more war. 
a region already destabilized by 20 years of meaningless American military aggression, by decades of dictatorship and centuries of imperial subjugation, will fall to pieces even more than it already has fallen to pieces. And for what? Mark this down. On the 12th of January in the year of our Lord 2020, I, the Reverend Ben Daniel, have made this prediction. I'm going to go further. I've made this prophecy. If the United States goes to war in Iran, it will accomplish nothing. Death and misery and poverty and perpetual violence will be visited upon the people of Iran and its neighboring countries, and nothing of real or lasting value will be accomplished. Thus saith the Lord. We who know the touch of God's loving grace must not be complicit in the waging of this or any other war. We must raise our voices and move our feet in protest. We must create beauty in our art and in our music and in our writing and in our dance beauty that exposes the ugliness of war. And we must embrace the stoicism expressed in this morning's lesson from Acts. A stoicism that recognizes the universal, universal humanity of those who are children of a universal God. Amen.